0: Well, we are on this journey together of learning worship this Christmas season, and I got so many comments this week about um, how we read scripture out loud together last weekend that I've decided to do it again, okay? So I hope that's okay. This is uh, an awesome worship text from the book of Psalms, so I'm going to ask you to stand, and uh, from the screens we're going to read these beautiful, awesome words of worship together out loud with some... Oomph, okay? With some gusto to them. Here we go. Just the words. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name, forever and ever. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, today I want to talk with you about why worship matters to you. No matter who you are, young or old, no matter what your ethnic background, no matter your socioeconomic status, male or female, no matter who you are, I'm hoping that God will convince you today that worship should matter to you and that worshiping the one true God will begin to move its way up the priority list in your life and become a prominent feature of who you are and what you are known for. And we've been working off this definition, this working definition of worship supplied to us by a pastor named Louis Giglio, and I really do believe that it captures the essence of what biblical worship is. And I'd like us to. Uh, Say this out loud together, we said it a number of times last week, maybe some of you have it memorized, I'm working on it, but it's a definition and it goes like this, it's on your outline there. Worship is our response, both personally and collectively, to God for who He is, exclamation point, and what He has done, exclamation point, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. And that is so cool that you remembered that from last weekend, the exclamation points. You know, pastors wonder sometimes, did anybody remember anything that we said seven days ago? And you guys remembered that, so kudos to all of you for that. So we're going to look at five reasons why worship matters to you today, to me today, no matter where you're at on the spiritual growth continuum, no matter where you're at on the theological spectrum. And the first reason... That worship should matter to all of us today doesn't fit in the what's-in-it-for-me category. It doesn't fit in the, you know, it's-all-about-me mindset. Now, we'll find later on that worship does benefit us, and we know that, but we're not going to start there. We're going to begin with God and His worthiness to be worshipped. So here it is. Number one, why worship? Because God alone is worthy of your worship. God alone. Is worthy of your worship. As we just read, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You see, worship doesn't really start with us and how we feel and whether or not we're having a good day or not. Worship begins with God. And this may be a new thought to you, but you need to understand today, as do I, that God is worthy of your praise today just because he's God, just by virtue of who he is, and he may be more worthy of your praise than you really realized. But I want us to understand today that in heaven, they get that. The beings in heaven, the creatures in heaven, get that. That God is most worthy of our worship. If you were to turn to Revelation chapter 4, you would see recorded there, by John the Apostle, a vision that he was given in 90 A.D. towards the end of his life. This is the same John who was the disciple of Jesus, who walked with Jesus. All that. Well, towards the end of his life, in about 90 A.D., God pulled back the curtain and gave him a glimpse of what was going on in heaven. But it's not what was going on in heaven in 90 A.D. It, it was a vision, a future vision of what's going on in heaven at some point in the future. Hasn't even really happened yet. But the curtain rolls back and John writes, I saw a throne in heaven and someone, this glorious being seated on this throne and circling the throne is an emerald rainbow. So there's dazzling array of light around the throne and then surrounding that are 24 other thrones. And there are creatures in heaven and there are angels, it says, with wings. And it says they never cease day and night to cry out. You know what they cried out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And that's the scene in heaven that John has given. He writes it down in 90 A.D., but it actually hasn't happened yet. It's, it's a glimpse of the future in heaven, future even to us. And it's an amazing scene. And you see that and you go, wow, that's really cool. But but check this out. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is given an identical vision of what's going on in heaven. And, of course, Isaiah was writing in 700 B.C., okay? And, again, the curtain is rolled back, and Isaiah is given a vision of what's going on in heaven. And here's what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So this huge seen and above him were seraphs these are a category of angels each with six wings with two wings they've covered their faces like they're shielding their eyes from from the dazzling glory that is before them and with two they cover their feet and with two they were flying and they were calling out to one another holy 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 is the lord god almighty the whole earth is full of his glory Now, do you get what's going on here? This is a glimpse of what's going on in heaven in 700 B.C. And we just understood that in Revelation 4, John wrote down a vision of what's going on in heaven at some point future to him and even to us. So here's the deal. For 2,710 years, at least, full-on, all-in, non-stop worship is what's going on in heaven. God is that worthy of worship. You don't see in the scriptures any, any, any stop to that. You don't see any point in time where a group of angels is saying, you know, we're getting kind of bored of this. We got it, you know, we understand God, and, and let's go on to something else. You don't see any of that. God is that worthy of 2,710 years of nonstop worship. Now, you think about how fame works in our world, in our celebrity-crazed culture. If someone goes on a 10-year run of fame, that's, we'd say that's pretty good, huh? If someone goes on a 25-year run, we'd say that's phenomenal. You know, think of like Michael Jackson or Madonna, you know, who've been around for about 25 years and headlining for that time. If maybe there's a few legendary type people who have a 50-year run of fame. But let me ask you. Does anybody remember who was the the hot item in 1910, 100 years ago? Long forgotten, right? Fame in our world has a short shelf life, for sure. There's an expiration date. But you and I need to understand today that there is no expiration date. There is no limited shelf life for worshiping God. He is that glorious. He is that multifaceted. Beatings are... Beings in heaven are not getting tired of worshiping him. They're not getting bored. And of course, with people in our culture, the more we find out about them and what's going on in their private lives, the more disenchanted we become with them. Yes? And yet, you know what? We who know Christ are going to be worshiping God in heaven forever. We're never going to grow bored. We're never going to grow weary. And we're never going to find some scandal, you know, that taints the reputation of God. It's not going to happen. God... Alone is worthy of our highest worship, of being our supreme treasure. And that's why worship ought to be moving up in the priority list of your life and of my life. Second, we touched on this last week, but worship, we need to understand that worship matters to us because we were meant for worship, we were created for worship. It's in us you will worship something with your life. I said last week that worship is not that thing that Christians do. It's that thing that people do. We were created to worship. Paul explained this, how it works. When he visited Athens way back in the first century, and he walked into that very cultured, very refined city with a lot of sophisticated people. And he noticed that they had idols everywhere. And he walked in there and he said, I perceive that you're a very religious people. They weren't believers in Jesus, but they were worshipers. And they had row upon row of idols. And he noticed one at the very end that had a little inscription. It said, to the unknown God. Kind of a catch-all idol. Like in case we've missed any God that's out there, here's one that to kind of you know, make sure that, that that God gets worshiped too. And he walked over to that. He capitalized on it and said, let me tell you about this unknown God that you don't really know. Let me, let me tell you who that is. And he began to explain to them how God has designed and orchestrated things for worship. In verse 26 of Acts 17, he says this, From one man, that would be Adam, he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Basically, what what Paul was saying is there's a a built-in worship mechanism in all of us, hardwired into all of us, implanted in us by our Creator that causes us to reach out and search and try to find something greater than ourselves to worship. It is in us. And you will worship something with your life. I saw a video clip a few weeks ago that just to me, was a picture of worship. It illustrates this point clearly, that all of us are worshipers. You know, back in the day, Michael Jackson was it, right? Um, he had raving fans all over, all over the world. And I saw this clip on YouTube, and I thought, you know, what, what a picture of abandoned worship. So take a look up at the side screens. Check this out. You see, the danger is not that people will go through their lives and not find anything to worship. Danger is that people will get to the end of their lives and wake up and realize that they spent their life worshiping some little G God, puny little, tiny little God that was not worth a lifetime of devotion. That's the danger. It's so people are going to worship something. They're going to worship a celebrity. A rock star, a sports figure, a hobby, or the car that's sitting out in the parking lot, or themselves, or Jesus Christ, the only one worthy of our worship. We need to understand today that we are, by nature, worshipers. You are a walking, living, breathing billboard for something that you treasure in your life, that you embrace, that you value highly. Remember that word worship in the English language is the conjunction of two words, worth and ship. And so the idea of worship is that you're assigning worth to something. You're saying, that's valuable to me. That's important to me. I treasure that. I cherish that. And all of us are walking billboards for something, that thing which we cherish the most. And I tell you, the people around you know it. The people who live with you know what you're worshiping. The people who work with you know what you're worshiping. So the reason that worship needs to become more important to you today, and particularly worshiping the one true God, is because you're going to worship something with your life. Third reason, I need you to stay with me on this one, is that there's a war going on for your worship. Did you know this? So, maybe you're not accustomed to thinking this way, but I want, I want us to understand this morning that there is a spiritual war going on for our worship. Worship should matter to you today because behind the curtain, when you get a glimpse of what's going on behind the curtain, what's going on in that spiritual world, that spiritual realm that we can't see with our physical eyes, there is a war going on for the worship of human beings. Because God has a sworn enemy who is not in heaven today for one reason. You know what it is? Because he does not believe, he refuses to believe that God alone is worthy of supreme worship. So Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, kicked out of heaven, because he led a rebellion, he led a defection against God. And he is set on demonstrating the unworthiness of God to be worshipped. Do you understand that today? There's a war going on for your worship. Lucifer, Satan the former worship leader in heaven, is out to prove that God is not worthy to be worshipped, but God, through the unfolding of human history, is seeking to demonstrate His own supreme worth. Satan wants to rob God of your worship. And if that's a strange thought to you, this next thought is going to be stranger still. Because when you open the Bible to the book of Job, you see something going on behind the curtain in heaven that is... That is stunning. And in Job chapter 1, we are given the story of this man named Job who loved God, who was devoted to God, who feared God, who was upright and righteous and also very prosperous and had abundance in his life. And it says that Satan somehow, I don't understand this, came into the presence of God after roaming to and fro throughout the earth, it says, and he approaches God and he taunts God. And he says, oh, yeah, Job worships you. Job's devoted to you. Anybody would. You've given him all this abundance, all this prosperity in his life. It's all good. It's Joyville for Job every day. And so, of course, he worships you. Take that away, and he will drop you like a brick. And God says, no, 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 no. Job loves me. Job Job loves me, loves me. He loves me for who I am, not just because of the good things I've given him. And Satan says, I don't think so. I think it's shallow. And I think if you were to touch Job's life, if you were to remove your hedge of protection, if you were to take all those material and physical and family blessings away from him, he would curse you to your face, God. God said, no, no, it's not that shallow. It's real with Job. He knows my supreme worth. Satan says, well, let's find out. And God, it says, grants permission and says, okay, you can take it all away. Just don't kill him. Don't take his life. You can shuffle that deck theologically however you want to, but it's in the Bible. It's in there for a reason, because God's glory was on the line. Job struggled, didn't he? He lost his health. He lost his livelihood. He lost his family. He didn't know what was going on behind the curtain. He just thought he was having a really bad week. And he started out pretty good. He said, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He even kind of rebuked his wife and said, you know, how can we accept good from God and not adversity? But after that, he wavered a little bit like all of us would. He was human and he wrestled with it and he's sitting, scraping his wounds with the broken pieces of pottery and he begins to question God and he gets angry and he he tries to listen to his well-meaning friends and he struggles. And after a while, you read through the book of Job and and then God starts a dialogue with Job and I can't even imagine that, but somehow God enters into a dialogue with Job and they're talking and, and, and finally Job says, you know what, I don't have anything else to say to you. Because the more you're talking and and the more I'm listening, I'm realizing you're God and I'm not. And and, and I I don't have anything to say. I don't like what's going on. It doesn't feel good. I don't understand it. Towards the end, he says this. Even though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I think God turned to Satan and said, See, he's devoted to me for me. It's not because of all the good things I put in his life. Job loves me, worships me, and is devoted to me because he knows I have the supreme value in all the universe. And I don't want to take too much of a leap off of that story, and and I want to be careful, but I want to suggest to you, and I couldn't say this specifically in anybody's case, but I want to suggest to you that there are going to be times in your life where when you're having a bad week, that there's actually more going on behind the scenes than meets the eye. And that maybe Satan has been roaming in and around Columbus, Ohio, seeing what's going on, looking for an opening, looking for a way to demonstrate the unworthiness of God to be worshiped. And he goes into the presence of God somehow, some way, and says, Hey, see her down there? She's devoted to you because you've blessed her life. It's wonderful all the time. You've given her a nice job and a house and a beautiful car and an apartment and a boyfriend and all this stuff. And oh, yeah, she worships you. She goes to church. Anybody would take it away. God, just take it away and you'll see she'll drop you like a rock. Probably even curse you to your face. And God says, no, 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 she loves me, loves me. She loves me for who I am. Satan says, I don't think so. God says, no, she does. She really does. And Satan says, let's see. God removes some layer of protection and car gets broken into. She goes in, they find a mass on her liver. She loses her job. Her washer and dryer break down. Somebody keys her car. All this stuff goes on. And she's like, what is going on here, God? I I serve you. I love you. I worship you. This isn't really what I signed up for, God. I don't understand it. And she begins to wrestle with it and back and forth and all the theological implications. And friends come alongside and try to explain things. And she tries to listen. But the longer this goes on, the harder it gets for her. And finally, she says, God, i got nothing to say to you. The more I understand how things are orchestrated here, I realize you're God and I'm not. I I don't really have anything else to say to you, but I do know this. Though you kill me, I will stay devoted to you. And God turns to Satan and says, She loves me. Not because of the good things i put in her life. She loves me because I'm worth loving. Regardless, you see in our lives, and particularly in the dark times, we have a choice with our worship, don't we? We can say, God, I I signed up for this deal where, you know, I serve you and you make my life easy and it's all good. But there's a war going on for your worship and for my worship behind the curtain. And that choice in those dark moments. You know, sometimes we worship by faith, don't we? Sometimes you come in on a weekend here and gather with your church family and the lyrics come up on the screen and you're seeing them and in your heart you're going, you know, I'm not there. I'm not there, but but God, by faith, I'm going to worship you with my lips right now because that's where I want to be. I'm not there yet. Worship needs to move up your priority list and become a primary feature of your life today because there's a war going on for your worship and God's glory is on the line. His worthiness is on the line. There's a couple more reasons. I don't have time to develop them a whole lot, but let me give them to you for your own study. Number four, worship should matter to you today because you will eventually become what you worship. (laughs) That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Listen to Psalm 115. The psalmist writes this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. Man, somebody ought to capture that and write a worship song that says that. That's so good. Why? Because of your love and your faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Answer, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. What a statement about God. You know what? The nations have their gods. Our God's up in heaven. He's doing whatever he wants to do. He does whatever pleases him. Verse 4, but their idols, the idols of the nations, are silver and gold made by the hands of men. So he's talking about handcrafted idols like I saw over in India a couple of weeks ago. Thousands of handcrafted idols. Verse 5, they have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they can't see. They're inanimate objects, okay? They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. They've got hands, they can't feel anything. Feet, but they can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Verse 8, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. What's he saying? You will become what you worship. Eventually you will. Here's a true statement. What we value most, what we treasure most, consumes us. And what consumes us will eventually conform us, will shape our lives and determine our destiny. Like I said earlier, everybody in this room is a walking, living, breathing billboard for something. And you know what? As you worship that, as you devote yourself to that thing, you take on the characteristics of that object of worship. If it's Jesus... If Jesus is your supreme treasure in life, the more you worship him, 2 Corinthians 3 says, the more you're in his face, he's going to conform you into his image. You become more like Jesus. So one day, 1 John 3 says, when we see him, we will be like Jesus. But you know, if you choose a a little puny, small g God to worship with your life, whatever that might be, you'll be conformed by that as well. Some people worship money with their lives. And truth be told, over time, they are turning into disposable currency. You worship an inanimate object, you worship something less than the one true God, and you'll find over time that although you have a mouth, you don't have anything really to say to anybody of any value you'll find that although you have feet that are taking you on a path, that path's not going anywhere, fruitful or productive. You have hands, yeah, but your, your sensitivity, your feeling, it's, it's not there for things that really matter. And so we need to understand that whatever we choose to worship matters because you will become what you worship eventually. And the final reason I'm going to address today why worship matters to you should matter to you is because worship fuels your soul. And some of you are saying, yes, finally, I knew it was for me. I knew worship would benefit me. And it is true, but we don't start there when we talk about worship, because if we start with how this experience of worship affects us, then we can get to that point where we say, you know, worship used to really do it for me. I used to get that worship buzz when I came to church and sang the songs and stuff, and it was really cool. It really filled my tanks back then. But, but you know, worship's not really doing it for me anymore, so I think I'll try something else. That's why we don't start with what worship does for us. But when we read the Bible, there is a dimension, there is this angle that declares that worship is fuel for the human soul. Worship of the one true God. It's written out this way in Psalms. And notice how much time we're spending in Psalms when we're talking about worship, because it was basically a worship manual, a praise manual. But in Psalm 42, we don't know exactly what the psalmist was going through at that time, what circumstances surrounded him. We just know it was a dark time for him. And he wrote this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So here we see the psalmist giving a pep talk to who? To his own soul. So his his mind, through his mouth, is speaking to his soul, giving his soul a pep talk. Now, with most people, it works a little bit differently. Their soul, the seat of their emotions, their feelings, is actually telling their mind what to do and how to feel and where to go. But people who are being consumed in worship are coming to understand that their mind needs to be renewed by the truth of this book. And as their mind is renewed in truth, then their mind begins to inform and guide their soul and say, hey, soul... Why so downcast? Why so disturbed? Come on. Put your hope in God. And since we're all contained in this body right now, we're going to all go together to the place of praise. Does that sound a little bit too doctor Phillish for you? But there's some truth in it. The psalmist says, Soul, you've been putting your hope in other things. That's why you're downcast. That's why you're despairing. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. You know what what his mind is saying to his soul, really? Soul, you're downcast, you're despondent, and I want to tell you about a drug that you can take. And it's not crystal meth. It's not crack cocaine. It's not alcohol. It's praise. (laughs) The drug of praise. And if you will just praise God, God, even though you are downcast, you're going to see God fill you up. And how many times do we read in the Psalms where David, after praising God, says, God lifted my head. He's the lifter of my head. And fuel was poured into his soul as he decided by the grace of God to choose to put his hope in God and to praise God. I'm telling you, worship is fuel for your soul. Maybe you came in today and your soul is downcast. I don't know what's going on in particular. In your, well, I know what's going on in some of your lives, but not all of your lives. And you're in and you're down and your circumstances are weighing you down. And, and you're thinking, where, where is my, how can I feel good again? Where is my pleasure? Should I try this or that escape or this pleasure hit? And, and the word of God and God himself would call out to you and say, you know what, why don't you try the drug of praise? Why don't you praise God through the pain? Praise him through the pain. Why worship? Why worship? Because worship of the one true God who deserves all of your worship is fuel for your soul. So we'll stop there. Those are, there's a legion of reasons for worshiping God, but that's enough for one day, okay? Okay. Why worship God? Why, why should worship be becoming more prominent in my life and more of a priority? Number one, because God alone is worthy of your worship. Number two, you're going to worship something. You're going to worship something with your life. You're created to worship. Third, there's a war going on for your worship. Four, you'll become what you worship. And then this last reason, worship is fuel for your soul. So would you bow your heads with me? I've thought a lot about what this challenge needs to be at this moment for the congregation of New Life. And it occurs to me that, um, well, first, it occurs to me that worship is a response. We've said that to God, both personally and together, collectively to God. I believe right now our worship needs to be a response to God. And maybe you've come in today, and the, the scenario I just described of being downcast and your soul feeling empty, maybe you need to give a pep talk to your soul today and say, put your hope in God, worship God, and praise him through the pain. If that's you today, would you lift your hands all around the building? That's me. I need to, God's calling me to praise him by faith through the pain in my life right now. Amen. Many, many, many hands. You put your hands down. Others of you, the truth about you is that if anybody really knew you, they would know that what's got on the throne of your life is a little G-God. Just a small G-God. And I'm telling you, as your pastor and friend, you don't want to get to the end of your life and find that you have devoted your life, you've flung yourself at a little G-God who was not worthy of a lifetime of devotion. That's disaster. That's fatal. And some of us, frankly, just need to repent. So I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I know, but you still need to repent of allowing some substitute, functional Savior to take the throne that is rightfully God's in your heart. And it's been a while since I've challenged our congregation with a physical response in worship to God, but I want to do that today because there are Psalms that talk about kneeling and bowing down before God who is our maker. And I felt prompted just myself personally to make my way up to the altar and just kneel as a a symbolic way of saying, God, I am under your authority. I am in submission to you. And I'm giving all of me to all that I understand of you right now. That, That offering of myself as a living sacrifice to you. And I'm kneeling before you to symbolize that submission to you. I'm going to challenge those of you whom God is talking to about that right now to join me at the front and just kneel if you can. If you physically can't, you can stand and maybe just bow your head and say, God, I am under your authority. I'm submitted to you. I'm declaring today symbolically by my kneeling or my bowed head that I'm all in with you. I'm worshiping you. I'm not going to settle for a substitute, God. We're going to worship with some musical praise in a moment, but um, let's respond right now to God in worship.